Um, Hello, we, I'm uh, Carrie Robert, Ann. Welcome to another service with Pastor our, Ray Dieter at Grace Baptist Church. Please check out our website, bbcevansville.org. Uh, there, here you'll find videos church. of our youth and children's uh, services, the 23rd, probably, daily devotions, uh, and other ministries our Christmas church has to offer. On the 24th, we invite you to join so us on Sunday mornings for an in-person service where we'll practice social distancing and follow safety guidelines. Now, and so we'll have let's a lot of hear what Pastor Ray has to say. I've been in the midst of a little bit of talking about uh, a, a kind of a mini-series within everything, uh, and I would entitle it, What Child Is This? And uh, in the midst of one of our sermons that we were talking about thankfulness, we talked about uh, the first chapter of Hebrews, one of the great Christological passages that tells us about Jesus Christ. Uh, another one is First John in the Gospel of John. Uh, <clears throat> uh, another is found uh, in Philippians 2, which is my favorite passage, and we will talk about that on Christmas Day. Um, but today I want us to go to the fourth one, which is found in the book of Colossians. And it is uh, uh, found in the uh, very first chapter. Uh, and I want you to understand we're going to say two different he's here, but that one refers to God the Father and one refers to God the Son. But it begins in 13 verse. And so I'm going to, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed unto us the kingdom of the Son, Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father, in him all the fullness should dwell." And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or, or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, who you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Uh, there's an old saying, seeing is believing. You know, there are a lot of things in the world <clears throat> that you can't see, but that doesn't mean they're not real. This room is filled with oxygen. If it wasn't full of oxygen, we'd be all choking and, and suffocating and, and dying. But it's here. But you can't not see it here. Uh, and one of the things that the Scripture explains to us is that God is like that oxygen. He is invisible, but He is everywhere. We can't see Him but he is here this morning. Uh, he is in all places at all times. And one of the problems that man has is we are kind of like, my grandfather was from Missouri, you know, the show me state. We kind of like to see things, you know, show it to me. I want to see how it works. I, I want to see it to make sure it's real. And one of the things about God is that he is a spirit. You can't see him. And so how do you deal with that? How do you reach out to mankind and let him know that you're there and let him know that you care 
and let him know that you're doing something about his sinful condition when he can't even see you. Uh, he did that by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live among us that we might see the Heavenly Father. <clears throat> the great Moody Church pastor, John Phillips, said, uh, the one who gives visible expressions to the invisible God. In other words, he says, Jesus comes and he expresses to us what God is like. He himself said, you know, look at me and you will see what God is like. Look at me. Uh, and, and so he brings us a living picture of God. First John 1, John writes about this in one of his letters. And uh, he is trying to explain this as he writes the letter uh, to explain why he is saying what he is saying. Uh, and, and he writes this, that which was from the beginning, had, which you have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us and true fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. John says, look here, what I'm telling you, I saw him. I touched him. He was here. He was physical. He was real. And so now I bring you and I give you witness of what he said and what he did and what he taught because I was there. I felt him. Uh, after his crucifixion, I saw the nail prints in his hand. I heard his voice and I know what it sounds like. And I know what he looks like. And see, it, it, what he's saying is that in this 15th verse, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, God is revealing himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ. So that's why it's important for us to study his life, the things he did, the things he said, the, the, the miracles that he worked, the sacrifice he made on Calvary's cross. Because in that physical person, Jesus Christ, God revealed all of his attributes and of all his power and all his authority. The intangible became tangible. That which did not seem real became real. That which we could not see, suddenly in Christ Jesus, we could see. And the purpose was that we might know the invisible God through his son, Jesus, Jesus Christ. And, and as he talks about him in that same verse, he says, the firstborn over all creation. Now, when we think of first, we think chronologically, right? Ohio State University, the Ohio State University was the first team to win the national football playoffs when they went to a four-team system. Go Bucks! Uh, we see things, and, and we know that they are real because we have seen them. They were the first. Nobody can ever take that away from them, uh, no matter how bad they get beaten in the playoffs this year. You, you can't take that away. That's the way we think when we think of first. But when he speaks here of first, he is not talking about chronologically. He is talking about position. He is talking about uh, he, Christ is superior and distinct and above everything. Everything is under him. He has complete power and authority over all things. Uh, it is a matter of rank, priority, and position. 
You know, in, in the military, they have what's called the chain of command. You go right up the chain of command, and until you get to be president of the United States, there's always somebody who's above you. Jesus Christ has no one above him. He is equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, he submits him, and we're going to talk about that on Christmas. He submits himself to the Father and becomes obedient even unto the death of the cross. But that does not limit his position of preeminence. Uh, nothing, absolutely nothing, compares to him. Uh, that's a problem with comparative Christianity, and we've talked about that often. You know, people want to compare themselves to other Christians, but we're compared to the real standard, which is Christ Jesus, and we fall short. Uh, he, he goes on in that 16th verse, he says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, whether they're visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He's, everything exists because he made it exist. The scripture says that God just created what we see out of absolutely, positively nothing. You know, he just made it to exist. And, and it is amazing how vast it is. I was reading this week a little article about telescopes. We keep making better and better telescopes, and we shoot them into space, and they take pictures. And every time scientists think they have reached the edge, the end of creation, somebody makes a better telescope, and they find something beyond it. This week they found uh, three galaxies they never knew existed. They've already been, always been there, but we, we couldn't see them. We didn't know they were there. And they are vast, vast, vast. Uh, just in our galaxy, the Milky Way, there are a billion stars. Uh, if you don't believe that, go out tonight. If it's a clear night, lay down on your back and start counting. In about 50 years, tell me what you come up with. You know, uh, a billion stars. Our, our uh, star is just one of them. It's the most important one, uh, apparently, because that's why we're here. But, uh, and then scientists tell us as they continue to discover new galaxies, one beyond the other, and not find the very even edge of the existence of the vastness of space, that there may be as many as a hundred billion galaxies. Think about that. That is absolute, complete vastness, and he made that. But the other side of the coin is he made intricacy, too. You are made up of tiny cells, uh, and, and they have distinct purposes. They're blood cells. They're nerve cells. Uh, I went to the doctor this week. I had to have some tests. And they, I, I don't recommend it, they stick needles in you, and then they, then they shoot electric into that needle, needle to see what moves. They're testing your nerves, you know. He was testing me along, and he, I felt him dabbing. I said, what are you doing? He said, you're bleeding. I said, that's because you stuck me with a needle. What do, you, what, do you, what do you expect? You know, but he and I were talking, and he said, you know, in your body, there are about 300 trillion cells. Wow. 300 trillion cells. And they are all crucial. And they serve out their purpose, and then they die. Uh, but they're replaced by new cells. As we grow older, that process begins to diminish, and we begin to age. 
But think about that. The, the, the vastness of everything, and yet the intricacy of it. You know, one of the most amazing things in the world is you can see me, and you can hear me. And it's all because of the intricacy of the way in which you were created by our Creator God. Uh, it, it, and it all holds together because of Him. If you look at verse 17, and He is before th all things, and in Him all things consist. That means they hold together. They don't fall apart. Um, I tried to fry French toast this week. I can't fry French toast. I thought I knew what I was doing. Got the skillet ready. Put it in there. It looked pretty good. It was cooking along. And when I went to flip it over, instead of one slice of bread, I had about four big chunks. It just fell apart. And no matter how hard I wanted, I couldn't put it back together and make it a slice of French toast. We had French mush. <laughs> Things have a tendency to fall apart. Your life may be like that. Do you ever have one of those days you get up and say, man, I don't want to go out and face the world today. Things are just not. But he holds everything together. Amen. It consists because of Him, exists because of Him, and it consists because of Him. And not only that, uh, He puts in along with that, He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in all things He may have preeminence. He says He is uh, uh, in this role as the, as the firstborn from the dead, He has received the authority and power over His body the church. Now, I understand Elijah raised some people, Elisha raised some people, but everybody that they raised died again. Jesus raised Lazarus, and Lazarus died again. But when Jesus came out of the grave, He came out of the grave in a new and glorious eternal body, and He changed the dynamic. And because of that, uh, He, he, he uh, takes preeminence as the first to have the new and glorious body for eternity. And His promise is that everyone who believes and trusts in Him one day will experience that and receive that new and glorious body at His return, which is another sermon altogether. Uh, but look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in, it all, in Him all the fullness should dwell. The word there in Greek is pl uh, uh, pleroma. And it means exactly what that says. Uh, he, he was completely, absolutely God. Fully God. He wasn't partly God. Well, I have these attributes of God, but not those. He had all, absolutely all, the attributes of God. Omnipotence, all-powerful. Omniscient, all-knowing omnipresent, everywhere present except while he was in that body, but that was because he restrained that. But he knew what was going on other places. Remember when one of the disciples came to him, he had been under a tree praying, and Jesus said, before you came here, I knew you were there. And I saw you there. Uh, he became man without ceasing to be God. Now, you want me to explain that? I can't. That's one of the miracles of faith. I don't understand how he can be completely, fully man, have a physical body, 
age, wear out, become tired, and yet be fully God. You know, math teaches us you one and one make two. But in Christ Jesus, one and one make marvelous, glorious unity. And he did not lay aside any of his attributes of God, although he laid aside using them, all right, until his purpose was fulfilled. Uh, John 1, 14 said, uh, referring to Jesus as the Word, he said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld him full of grace and truth. He came, and he was completely, absolutely, positively, 100% God. And he became flesh for the very purpose that we might come to know him. That which was invisible became visible so that man could see, touch, hear, and learn from him. And then proclaim the gospel through God's word. That those of us who have not had the opportunity yet to see him might know he was real. He was here. He walked on earth. He did all these marvelous things that the scripture says. And he died on the cross for your sins and mine. And that was a purpose of that. Uh, one of the things that we'll talk about down the line is that he's still in that physical body. And he's in the presence of God eternally. Go to verse 20. And by him the record to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on heaven or things on in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. He says, listen, uh, through Jesus Christ, God reconciled man to himself. Now hear me here and stick with me. It does not say God reconciled himself to man. It says God reconciled man to himself. The problem was not God. The problem was man. And so the reconciliation brings us back to him. Uh, in that ver marvelous verse, it, it says that uh, uh, it, it, on heaven, he reconciled all things to himself by him. In other words, God reconciled all things to himself the Father by him the Son, uh, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Uh, he, he reconciled us on earth by paying the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is death. And he died on the cross so you wouldn't have to. So I wouldn't have to. He died that that death sentence could be carried out and fulfilled on our behalf. He stepped into the gap and died in our place. And so that reconciles us to him. But he, he goes beyond that and he says that, there, that, uh, that, that it also applies to the things in heaven. Now hear, hear me now. By coming, by living, sin-free, by dying on the cross, by being glorious resurrected, he sealed Satan's eternal fate forever. Uh, no more Satan in heaven accusing the brethren. You know, he stands in heaven. I, I was thinking about that this week. And he stands in heaven, and I, I used to always think, well, he's there telling God lies about us. But he's not. 
He's there telling God how we really are. Did you see what they did? Did you know what they thought? Because we are by nature sinners. So he doesn't have to make up anything. He says, just look at that. Look at that. And God responds, I know. But that's been taken care of through Jesus Christ because they belong to me. And that has been forgiven in advance of it even happening. And Satan's fate is sealed. One of these days he'll be cast out, cast away, and he'll have no more power, no more authority to accuse anybody to do anything, to do those things that he does against us. Let's talk about it this way. We're talking about being reconciled to God. You know the story of the prodigal son? It's a debate, you know, and I don't know why, whether the prodigal son or the good Samaritan is the best short story ever written or ever told, but uh, I love both of them. But the prodigal son's a marvelous story. Uh, This boy is living in a prominent household. Dad's got a lot of money. One of these days, dad's going to die. Under the provisions to the way they were in his day, his older brother is going to get two-thirds of everything, and he'll get a third. The boy works out in the fields. He works in the farm. He works hard. He's getting tired of all this because dad's sitting on a boatload of money. So he looks at it and he thinks about it and he thinks, you know, I don't have to do this. Why am I out here busting my, and doing these things when I could be living in a lap of luxury? So he goes to dad and he says, look, dad, here's the deal. I've had enough of this. I don't want my older brother bossing me around anymore. Tell me what to do. I don't want to work in your uh, businesses. I want my share of the money and I want it now. You know, J.G. Wentworth, I want my money and I want it now. And the father, hear me, is a wise, wise man. He doesn't argue with the son and say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. He doesn't say, well, you need to hang around and be more like your brother. He says, okay, I'll get my accountant and we'll count this out. And he gives him a third of everything and he lets him go. That's a perfect example of what the scripture teaches God has invested in each of us in that we have free will. The Father let him go. We have abandoned God. We have said to God, I can do this on my own. I don't want to go by your rules and your your guidelines. I'm tired. Who are you to tell me what to do? Oh boy, that's a big statement. And I'm just going to go out on my own. Joanne and I, we, we served three glorious years for us in Ohio at Little Where's Chapel. Time came when uh, the, uh, that time we're uh, United Methodists, the bishop said that I had to return to Indiana. Uh, long story, we won't even get into that. Uh, and so we had to leave. So we came back to Indiana. But while we were at Where's Chapel, we had developed a very intimate relationship with a couple named uh, Wigger and uh, Don and Helen. They had six kids. Lived in a four-room house. Didn't have much of anything except God. Great, two of the, some of the greatest people I've ever met, fine Christian folks. Uh, <clears throat> we had been here for a little while. And one day I told Joanne, I said, I want to call and see how the Wiggers are doing. And so we called. And I said, hey, Don, how you doing? He said, we're doing fine. And I said, we sure do miss you. And he said, 
We haven't moved. We're right here on Monroe Central Road in the same house where we've lived for 40 years. You left us. And he was right. You see, God doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us. We wander off in disobedience from God. I can do this better by myself. I don't need you, God. He's right where he has always been. See, the particle came, and I'm here to tell you, the dad was a wise guy, smart guy. He could have told him all kinds of stuff. He could have given him all kinds of good advice. But he knew it wouldn't do any good. Son was in rebellion. I'm going out there in the world, and I'm going to make my way. God says here, the father, said, representing God, says, here it is. Go see what you can do. And they let him go to learn a bitter lesson. God gives us free will. And he allows us to use that free will even though we use it poorly. And sometimes it is just downright stupid the things we do. But we're all bound to a point where we have to learn a bitter lesson or die eternally. Scripture says the son was out there. You know, everybody's your buddy when you got money. Have you ever noticed that? Everybody likes you when you got cash and you're spreading it around. Uh, lots of parties, lots of friends. And then one day, he found that he had squandered, is the scripture word, he had used up all the money his dad had given him. And it was a substantial amount. It should have kept him his whole life. But he had used it up. So he had to find a job. He had no real skills. Finally, he took a job, which is the worst job a Jewish boy could take. He was tending the pigs. Now, pigs are totally unclean. They're not kosher by any means. And he found himself with nothing to eat but what the pigs didn't want. Now think about that. A pig will eat about anything. I saw, well, that's another thing in our farmyard. I saw a pig eat a snake once. I couldn't believe it. I said, what's that, what's that pig got? But whatever it was they wouldn't eat, he had to eat it because that's all there was. And one day he's sitting there in the pigsty. Boy, smell that. Mmm. And he came to himself, is what the scripture says. And he repented. He said, man, I have, I have, this is dumb. I have brought this on myself. It is no one's fault but mine. My father was gracious. My father took care of me. My father loved me. And yet I abandoned him. And I came out here and look what I've done with my life. I'm in the midst of the pigs and the stink and the slop. And he had a, cogent moment he said I'm going to stand up and I'm going to go home and when I get home I'm going to say dad I have sinned against you and God when I get home I'm going to say dad I'm so sorry I took what you gave me and I just blew it on all these wild things and I've got nothing to show for it and dad I am sorry I was wrong and I'm home but I don't come home as a son I come home as a servant <laughs> Give me a place working on your farm, 
or in your business. I'll do anything, Dad. Let's talk about the father a minute. He had the wisdom to let him go, to learn a bitter lesson. But in my mind, I see him every day going to his bedroom window and looking into the distance with the hope and the prayer, today will be the day I'll look out and I'll see my son coming home. And every day, there was disappointment. But then, oh glorious morning, he looked out the window, and in the distance, he saw someone walking. And he recognized his son's gait. We all walk distinctively, I don't know if you know that or not. And he knew who it was. And he came down, and he ran to meet him. Amen. And he embraced him. Amen. The son was reconciled to the father. The father gave him free choice. The father never forced him. He allowed him to go off and learn a bitter lesson. But when he returned, the father ran to greet him and meet him. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he, meaning God, has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Jesus has reconciled us in the sight of God the Father. And we, like the prodigal, need to repent and turn home. One of the greatest paintings that is known is The Lord's Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. I think we may have that. Let's see if we've got that. There it is. So Jesus with the 12 disciples on the last night of his life as they gathered in the upper room, as he broke bread to eat their traditional Passover with them, and then he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. What many people don't know is it took da Vinci a long time to paint that. And he used actual, actual models to sit in for each character. And as he painted it, he, he began with the centerpiece with Jesus Christ. And he saw a young man who sang in the choir at the cathedral. And he asked the priest about him. He said, oh yeah, he's a, a great young man. He said, he, he loves to sing and he's just joyous and happy all the time. And so he asked that young man, his name was Pietro Bandanelli. He said, would you sit, I'm painting a picture. And I want you to be Jesus Christ in the picture. So uh, Pietro came and he painted him right in the center. And then Da Vinci began to fill in the disciples and he would look for people, real people, who he thought might uh, have the characteristics of some of the disciples. And so, you know, uh, he found a fellow who was a rough... A working man, uh, hard hands, and he used him for Peter. And over the years, he filled this in, and he filled in, but he never could quite come up with Judas. Judas is crucial to the story. He needs to be in the picture. He was there. 
Jesus, in fact, told them, someone at this very table is going to betray me. And every one of them says, is it me? Is it me? And Judas says, is it me? And Jesus said, what you've got to do, you go do quickly now. And sent him away. And he went to Caiaphas and high priest. And for money, he betrayed the Son of God for money. Finally, Banalini, well, had not been around for many years and not been seen. And, and uh, Da Vinci continued to paint the picture. And he was down where he needed Judas. And he heard about a man who had been arrested for some very, very horrific, terrible crimes. And he went to see him. And he was a snarly, hateful, obscene person. Nastiest person Da Vinci had ever met. And he said, I've found my Judas. And he painted him into the picture. When he was done and the work was complete, as the man was being led back to jail, he turned to Da Vinci and he said, I'm in that picture twice. And Da Vinci says, well, I'm not sure. I don't remember you. I should have recognized you. <clears throat> Where are you? Are you John? Are you Peter? And Mandinelli walked to the picture and pointed to Jesus Christ. He had been the model of innocence and purity. And he was also the model of sin and death. Now, you may look okay on the outside, but inside sin corrupts and kills. We start life off as a fresh little babe. But then somewhere along the line, temptation enters. And the sin begins to build up inside us like crud. That's a theological word, by the way, crud. And it dampens our spirit and darkens our soul and robs us of joy. Oh, we can deny it. And we say, well, I'm happy, I'm doing fine. But we're like the prodigal son. Without Jesus, we're just lying to ourselves. But He stands ready for us to return and come back. And He changes us from the inside out. Some of the prettiest weak women in the world are the most wicked. Some of the handsomest men are the most wicked. In our society, we honor people and we look at them on the outside when the Scripture says He looks within us and He knows what is there. And it may not make us ugly like it did uh, Bandinelli, but inside it brings decay and death. And the only way to deal with it is to come running home and say, God, I'm ready to admit that I've been wrong and I'm just a sinner in need of grace. And only you can bring it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that that which was invisible in Christ Jesus became visible.
Thanks again for joining us for another service with Grace Baptist Church. Connect with us using the social media links on our website, gbcevansville.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week.